Hey everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing magnificently. So we had a couple of callers tonight, all of which were divine and delightful. And the first was a woman who has some concern about whether her female friends are of the highest possible quality or whether they might be stifling her individuality and originality of thought in order to have her conform to their particular prejudices. And we delved deep, deep, I tell you, into the bullrog, black-hearted depths of false friendships, or at least potential false friendships, and I think we came to a very good conclusion about good ways to view friendships that are good for you and those that uh, may not be quite so much. Now, the second caller wanted to know, how is it that the modern political left has become so entrenched in what we think of as good and right and moral in the West? And is it possible to think of a world in which political agreement is not taken as a measure of intelligence or virtue and so on. The last caller had a question around political correctness, identity, politics, and wanted to know how did we get to this place where criticizing any ideology or certain ideologies or certain people immediately gets conflated with racism and sexism and so on. How is it that we can have debates with people who simply scream or blarp these kinds of ad hominems at people? And it's not that they do it so much, it's that other people don't even seem to notice or view it as somehow justified. And we talked about several current events where this seemed to have raised its ugly head and uh, disassembled them conceptually, I think, very, very well. So thanks for listening. This is going to be a great show for you. Don't forget, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And don't forget to use our affiliate link if you've got some shopping to do, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. All right, up first today we have Allison. Allison wrote in and said, In developing a relationship with my fiancé, I am no longer friends with some of my girlfriends. My best friends and I were friends for 10 years. I met them in college. I met my fiancé last year through an online dating website. He is a loyal, empathetic, and good man. I uprooted from the States to Australia, where he is from, so we could live abroad together. My girlfriend stopped being friends with me because I couldn't be in their weddings on an account of moving abroad to develop a relationship with him. One of my friends also said she didn't like that I've changed and that I've become analytical, so she stopped being friends with me. I'm challenged by developing new or past female friendships because I've discovered conservative values, I fear attack, and I don't know what I need from these females. I do have past friends who give me emotional support, but I also want to go beyond the emotional support and talk about truth, reason, and other Freedom Main Radio topics. So I'm wondering, how do I develop female friendships in a leftist world? How do I maintain my principles without sacrificing myself as I did in my past relationships? What is the role of female friendship? That's from Allison. Well, hello, Allison. How are you doing? Hello, Stefan. I'm doing well, thank you. Nice to nice to chat with you. Great, uh, great set of questions. And uh, I'm sorry that you seem to have broken your original coven. Uh, that is uh, always always a bit of a challenge when when that happens, right? When you you learn new stuff and your original friendships don't seem to be very nimble in making the adjustment. Is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. In fact, that was my fear all along with growth and change is that inevitably my close circles would change and they change dramatically. There's in my question, there's about four people that I'm referencing, but I've probably had about 
eight to nine people and then some through my Facebook, uh, Facebook circle that are uh, no longer really friends with me and view me as, very, as a very different person. And that change, you've changed. You know, people say that like, you've really changed. <laughs> You're like, it's a bad thing. Like, yes, uh, I've also changed from when I was a baby. I try to soil myself a little bit less and uh, boobs look smaller. That's all I can tell you. Right. Uh, they used to be the size of my head. And now if they are, that's not, that's a little scary. Um, so yeah, you've really changed. Uh, it's like a really bad thing. Um, and all, all that, I mean, change is one of these complex questions. We, I don't have to get into in, in too depth here because it's no, it's not there's the center of who you are, but we, we always have a nostalgia, you know, when there's things that change, you know, you move or, or you finish college, there's a bit of sweetness, right? Like you mm-hmm. liked your time in college or, or you didn't, you know, hopefully you did <laughs> spent a lot, but, um, you know, you liked <laughs> your time in college and then there's this moving on part. Uh, mm-hmm. and that is, uh, I remember being at a many, many years ago at a best friend's wedding. And, um, you know, when the daughter who he married, uh, he married this woman, uh, she moved out from her parents' home and, and this is where she'd been living and the mom was crying, but she was happy, you know, cause that's, the closing chapter of your direct parenthood. And um, so, yeah, it is a, um, there's a bit of sweetness when it comes to change. We kind of want things to stay the same when we enjoy them. But at the same time, we all know that if we did, it would be pretty bad, right? I mean, if you still had the same job when you were 30 as when you were 20, that would not be, not be great. Uh, So uh, Mm -hmm. people say you've changed like it's a bad thing. And, um, if you have decided to pursue the reason and evidence thing, then you are going to change, of course, because you get new information. It's impossible to remain prejudicial when you're committed to reason and evidence because you continue to have to process new information and um, new arguments come along. So you're constantly evolving towards that sort of platonic ideal of getting out of the cave and discovering truth. But that is mm-hmm. a challenge for a lot of people. I certainly know that you know, the friends that I had in my teens um, did not make it to my late 40s for the most part. Uh, mm-hmm. And it had to do with this dedication to reason and evidence. And then you've got a shitty choice, right? You've got a choice. Mm-hmm. Do I keep my friends or do I think? Ooh, <laughs> bummer. And, you know, it sounds like an easy choice. Well, you know, <laughs> but it, we're, we're designed to be social animals. We're designed to conform to the mm-hmm. tribe. We're designed to take seriously I mean, those of us at least who are case selected to take seriously, you know, criticisms or negative thoughts that people have in our social circle because we needed them to survive throughout most of human history and not noticing when the time has gone for a particular adaptive behavior is kind of fundamental to having a human brain that's evolved. So um, it is a real uh, it is a real challenge. And there comes with it a lot of hostility. I mean, towards you, I would assume, right? Tell me if I mean, you fear attack and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And, and they, you know, if, if a friend is going down the wrong path, don't you sit down with them and sort of quietly and peacefully and reasonably remonstrate with them and reason with them and say, you know, I got to tell you, I think this KKK direction you're going in is probably not the very, the very best thing that you could be going to and here's why. But instead, there's this sort of this this bullying, this threat of withdrawal, this threat of criticism, this threat of bad mouthing, this this wild um, hostility towards mm-hmm. somebody who's starting to really think, um, uh, not say think for a living, but think to live, and um, that's really tough. And and all I can say fundamentally is the three famous words which I had to say to my friends, former friends who disapproved 
of the course that I was on, who, but who could not reply anything back. Um, all I could say with them, sorry, not an argument. <laughs> the not an argument statement goes a very long way. It kind of wraps up a lot of people's sentiments when you're talking with them about challenging topics. And, you know, you said something that really stood out to me, the center of who you are. And that's ultimately what I've been after, especially in these last few years. Um, I, I've always kind of been caught up in other people's waves. And I Wait, was what do you mean by waves? Out, um, by like emotional waves. So I was always concerned um, about how are you feeling? How are you doing? What can I do for you? How can I help you? So being oh, very much a, a <laughs> You're such a chick. No, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, that's also partly the problem is I think for some of my girlfriends, uh, you know, I, I came, I've come off as more of a, I don't even know, maybe serious person. And whereas before I was more of this fun, outgoing, you know, take charge, help everyone. And, you know, that's still part of me. That's still part of my center. But now I'm just looking out for myself as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and it, came, it was at the crux of making the decision to move to Australia for my fiance that, uh, you know, everything came to a head. And this past year was a big time of transition. But overall, all of these past years since I've graduated college have been a big time of transition. Whereas for me, it felt like my former girlfriends were just all about, I graduated college. I have, you know, my partner, they got engaged, they're getting married, get a house. And that's ultimately what I'm doing as well. But I just have added a lot more of, you know, my own backstory and taking a little bit more risks and really trying to figure things out. And my fiance connected a lot of dots for me. He helped me really understand where my anxiety was coming from, you know, both in the abstract and personal sense. Whereas with my girlfriends, I kind of kept with them in my growth and I wanted them to come along with me. I really wanted to sort through it, but it was, it was just too much of a mountain to climb. Tell me about this word. I mean, there's a lot of what you say that I could spend days <laughs> sort of asking you about. But <laughs> the first one that pops into mind, Allison, is you said, she didn't like that I've changed. One of, you said, one of my friends also said that she didn't like that I've changed and that I've become dun, 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 analytical. Analytical. Ooh, you've turned <laughs> into I'm a thinking robot thinking. with no human emotion. I mean, what what is that? Are, are you like a are you like some giant attack robot with like chainsaws for hands now? What does it mean? Does it become analytical? What is what is she? What do you think? Is that the word she used? That is the word she used. Wow. So specifically, she was referencing it. It's the first time I ever really. I guess, challenged her in conversation. Whereas before our conversations were more, more of like, you know, how's work? How's your fiance? How, you know, just more light daily type conversation. And she's a therapist and um, she was talking about a difficult family, a family that she's having a difficult time working with because they just have a lot going on. And I started asking about the child and I started talking about parenting. And ultimately what I was getting to is that I don't believe in, in neglecting children, yelling at children, hurting them, you know, peaceful parenting, a topic that I would think she'd want to listen to. But I think what she was challenged about is that I had more information about it than she did. And what she was saying is, well, you don't have, you're not respecting my right to an opinion. And I said, well, what opinion? You're just telling me that I've changed. You don't like this. I'm telling you certain things about peaceful parenting that's important that maybe you should look out for the kid a little bit more in your therapy. Let's talk through it. 
Um, and also, you know, my voice is a little bit different with her. Whereas I think in the past, I used to talk like a lot more heightened and all these kind of, you know, upwards and kind of all over bouncy. And that's still part of me, but I, I'm much more, you know, calm in my approach and much more grounded. And I think I just sounded very different to her. And I, I wasn't putting up with the BS. I could have put up with the BS. I could have been like, yeah, no, I understand. No big deal. This is kind of where I'm at. This is where you're at. All right. Have a great day. But instead, I was like, no, this is my chance to really hardline a topic that's important to me and seeing if she's stepping up to the plate, because that's the point of growth for me is understanding, you know, peaceful parenting. It's kind of one of my principles, I guess you could say, is, you know, you don't hit kids. And I want people in my circle that also don't hit kids and yell at kids. And um, she basically said to me, you know what? Um, she called me Allie. You know what, Allie? Um, I really haven't been honest with you this past year, ever since you moved to Australia. And really before then, um, you know, I wanted to support you and I did, but you just, you just changed and I don't know how to relate to you anymore. And I get what she means from a female perspective of relating. And really? I just couldn't do anything hang on, about hang it. On, hang on, <laughs> hang on. Just before we get there, let's just pause and enjoy the spectacle of the sentence your friend said. You are right. not respecting my right to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, that's not a right. <laughs> Human rights do not include having an opinion. If she can have an opinion, are you not allowed to have a different opinion? So that's number one. Number two, mm -hmm. it's only an opinion if there are no facts involved. It's only an opinion if there's no reason and evidence involved. Right? So, you know, in my opinion, um, the Smiths, haven't produced a lot of music, good music in the past 20 years, in my opinion. I don't know if they're still together or not, but, you know, two, two great songs, right? How Soon Is Now and one other whose name, forget me. But in my opinion, blah, 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 right? In my opinion, this, that. Okay, that's an opinion, right? It's arguable, right? <laughs> um, you know, in my opinion, Freddie Mercury's solo album was terrible. <laughs> and uh, I, I met a guy who's, oh, yeah, my sister, that was like her favorite album. What, she's wrong, obviously, that's different. But, but um, so, you know, <laughs> there, there's no objective facts there, right? In my opinion, the world is banana-shaped. Well, now we're not in the realm of opinion particularly anymore because now you're making a truth claim about reality. And that is no longer the realm of opinion. And, of course, if she's so concerned with people having the right to have opinions, shouldn't you not hit children for their opinions, for their perspectives, for their talking back, for their disobedience, for their different perspectives. I mean, how is you disagreeing with someone somehow a violation of that person's right to have an opinion when the very thing you're disagreeing about is hitting children fundamentally for having different opinions? Is it, you know, if, if respecting someone's right to have a different opinion is important, she should be totally on board with the anti-spanking thing, right? But mm -hmm. my guess is, it has nothing to do with philosophy, my guess is, that if she gets fully on board the anti-spanking thing, she may have a more difficult time with some of her patients or some of her clients in therapy. So, I mean, I, I don't know. What do I know, right? But this, this, that's a glorious sentence that encapsulates so much that is entitled and incorrect and manipulative and bad thinking and um, mm -hmm. a betrayal of friendship. You are not respecting my right to have a different opinion. Well, how is her attacking you, respecting your right to have a different, you, you, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. then this thing, you know, this is, this happens as well. And I, I don't know whether it's more male or female. I've experienced it more from women. Oh, I shouldn't say, actually, in this call-in show, you get it quite a bit from men too. And it goes a little something like this. 
Um, you say to your friend, I disagree with you about something, and here are the facts, right? Your friend can't respond, and so what they do is they jump out of that conversation and call an airstrike in on the entire relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, well, this brings up a bigger topic, which I have not been honest with you about, Allison, that over the last year, you humana, 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 and I try, and suddenly you're not talking <laughs> about the original thing anymore. It's just. Right. And that is, um, that is a depressingly common thing. And um, it's terrible because you, you can't get the original issue resolved. And what they do is they basically threaten the entire friendship because you're wandering out of the charmed circle of magical non-confrontation, right? Mm-hmm. Don't ever disagree with me. Live and let live, blah de blah The only thing that, that I'm intolerant of is facts and reason and evidence. And so if you wander outside the charmed circle of magical agreement, which is in women's circles often called support, right? Support means agree with me even if I'm crazy. And, and that, mm-hmm. is not, that is not support. That's called enabling. That's right, codependency or whatever. And so when you, when you say, here's something that's really important, I'm going to stick by it, you've stepped out outside the charmed circle of live and let live and we'll agree to disagree and everyone can just have their own facts and their own opinions that they pretend are, are facts. And then you hear this stuka whistling from above. <laughs> this friendship is, you've changed over the last year. I tried to support. Ooh, and then you're not talking about the original thing anymore. Now you're like, whoa, what the hell is going on? We started off in spanking and now we're in this magical realm where suddenly I've been a bad, weird friend for the last year and you never ever get to deal with the original topic, do you? Right. Yeah, and, and the kicker with her is, so this was a few months ago when our friendship absolved, and she recently got in touch with me and said, I, you know, I miss you. I, there are so many times I, that I want to reach out to you because you would just kind of get what's going on, just kind of like inside jokes and day-to-day stuff. And um, she's like, I don't even know what happened between us. I would really love the chance to chat with you. And I said, you know what? I think we could rekindle and grow. But first, we have to acknowledge what happened in our conversation. And she got back in touch with me and goes, actually, all I needed was closure. I'm good. Pretty much what she said. Oh, man. What a witch with a capital B. (laughs) Right. So she's inviting you back into Planet Small, right? Little Mm -hmm. inside jokes. And I saw this really funny meme. And I didn't have anyone to share it with. Join me back in Planet Small, Allison. Planet tiny, planet inconsequential, planet nothingness, planet Mm -hmm. vapor, planet Mm -hmm. gas. And, and, And then, oh, this is classic. This is classic. I don't know what happened between us. I do, I, I don't know. What that means is, Allison, I did nothing wrong. It's all you. All you. And then yeah. when you say, well, I think let's have a real discussion about real things. Whoop. No. No, bait and switch. <laughs> if you're not going to mm-hmm. join me on Planet Small, I'm going to kick you out to Planet Gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the world I came from, and I mean, it was it was in some ways really difficult to break out of because to me, I connect so much with kind of the abstract, like politics, and you know how that kind of connects to the interpersonal relationships you develop. So I I just see so much benefit in what I'm learning, and it's frustrating to know that someone I really did care about just 
doesn't want to go along with it because they're challenged by it. When I am that person who can give you the support you need, but I need you to be on board with some of the stuff that I'm learning first or in tandem. Yeah. Any possibility we can have a fact-based friendship, you know, a reality-based friendship. And uh, what did you care about with this person? I'm not saying you didn't. I just want to know what the. Yeah. Well, I think for, I've always had at each stage of my life. So when I was a child, when I was in high school, in college, a little bit in my grad school as well, I always had a circle of women, like four to five girls when I was younger, little girls that, um, you know, I was close friends with. And particularly with my college girls, they helped me a lot. You know, I kind of was, I've, as much as I always appeared, I think as a confident, you know, in charge person, I think deep down, I was just suffering with a lot of different things that I've worked on through therapy. And so they really helped me, particularly when it came to dating. They always were the girls who were kind of finding their guys and dating. And I, I always just kind of struggled with it. So there was this, you know, they helped me out when it came to trying to figure out like, how am I, how do I date? How do I, how do I make a relationship happen? And, um, you know, it was helpful. I did call to them and if I needed to cry, I could and they listen and they console and vice versa. I think that's what we kind of set up for one another. But then it just became about that. Like I didn't really wasn't much more beyond it as much as that was really important to me at one point in time. So, you know, the whole point of crutches is to outgrow crutches. And so if you need some help, like let's say you have a weakness when it comes to dating or whatever, and other people know more, then they'll help you out. But the friendship can't be like, oh, let's help out poor little Allison or let, let's be her crutch and all that. Because then when you learn that stuff, you go, oh, okay, good. Now uh, now I can throw this crutch away and now let's march on as equals. And then it's like, whoa, whoa, hey, no, I'm, I'm here as a crutch for you. <laughs> I'm here to support right. you. What if you don't need support, right? Right. I think that's what happened is uh, I think that it was all those crutches that uh, in some ways these women protected me, but in other ways it inhibited my growth. Right. All offers of help have inevitably bound within them a form of superior and inferior relationship. Help is never an even playing field, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, if somebody, if you want to learn piano, you go to a piano teacher. That piano teacher knows hopefully a hell of a lot more about piano than you do and how to play. And they'll teach you. Right, mm -hmm. but you go because they have superior knowledge and you have inferior knowledge. Uh, you know, go to the dentist. The dentist hopefully knows more about how to take care of your teeth than you do and will help you do so and so on, right? And so, or at least more about drilling or scraping or whatever sadistic stuff turned out to actually be good for people. Um, <laughs> so, there's, I mean, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. The division of labor, somebody becomes really good at dating. Maybe somebody's really good at being an entrepreneur and this sharing of information, nothing wrong with it at all. The problem becomes, though, Allison, when that inequality, right, that slope becomes the relationship. Because then people are invested in themselves being higher or better and you being lower or worse. Mm -hmm. And then if, if – and, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. If as long as it's flexible in various fields, right? So if your friends were really good at dating and you weren't so good at dating and they helped you with that, fine. Okay, then you learn something about philosophy. You learn something about being analytical, right? You learn something about being <laughs> analytical 
And then you're bringing something to your friends. Now, when they brought something to you, like we're better at dating and you're not, you're good. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I have the ego strength to recognize my inabilities in certain areas, the importance of improving those abilities, the fact that you have better skills. I have the ego strength to be guided and taught by you. And this, you know, if then you learn something about philosophy or being analytical and you try to bring that skills to them or bring those skills to them and they're like, whoa, hey, whoa, you've changed. It's like, no, I'm just trying to bring to you what you brought to me. But because it's a in a, an equal relationship, it's an unequal relationship where they're superior and you're inferior, when you try and offer them something, whoa, doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that was a very unconvincing, mm-hmm, like, yeah, I'll just let him rant and then I'll go on with what I wanted to say before. <laughs> well, I was thinking that, um, I, I was wondering, well, what is it that I, I did for them to, like, what was my way of helping? And the only thing I could think of, number one, I mean, we had fun, too. I mean, especially, you know, in college. So we, we'd go out, we'd, we, and there were good memories with them. So there's that. Um, the other piece is, I think I was one who was always, like pushing the limits in some ways. So they all stayed where they're from. I moved in these last few years. I moved, I work in higher education. So I, I moved to work at different colleges and universities. So, you know, I maintained a career while moving all over, um, just kind of taking risks, which I think now looking back was more so acting out, like getting a couple piercings, which I've since taken out. But I think to them, I was like, oh, she's, you know, spontaneous, living life on the edge, having fun, but still being successful in her career. And I think I kind of represented this kind of fun exhilaration aspect, but that all comes to an end. And I'm really not interested in doing that anymore. What I'm interested in is being really grounded, being really clear on what I want to create in the future. Um, You know, having a really healthy relationship with my fiance and somewhere along that things just fell flat in these relationships. Right. Would you like me to give you a brief theory as to why that's the case? That would be wonderful. All right. People who are certain are usually not as smart. However, to people who are smarter and therefore less certain, right, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, the people who are less smart Mm -hmm. tend to be more certain about things. The people who are less smart and therefore uncertain start off lower in the hierarchy than the people who are less smart but more certain. Naturally, right? However, the people who are less certain because they're more smart end up overtaking the people who are more certain because they're less smart. So you looked up to these people because they seem to know how to do things, right? I mean, as far as dating goes, right? And maybe a couple of other things as well, right? Mm -hmm. And it probably was not as likely that they looked upon you as a source of wisdom or knowledge or efficacy in any particular area. And so the degree of uncertainty or you could say insecurity, which is rational when there's things that you want to learn that you don't learn yet. It's the gap that helps you close, insecurity, right? And so they're more certain and know the way the world should be and know what their place is and know how things should be and have all the answers and so on. And so you look up to them and they can help you because they're certain. But then because you start off uncertain, but you have a methodology for becoming more certain, you end up overtaking them, flying higher Mm -hmm. than they do. And that is the great life arc 
of people who are certain and people who are uncertain. People who are uncertain start off small and low and tiny and needy. I mean, I'm exaggerating. I mean, but you know what I mean, yeah. like, right? Yeah, and, I and, and then because they're willing to learn and because they recognize their own deficiencies, they end up overtaking the people who are more certain and know how the world is and know what needs to be done and so on. The free market comes from a place of uncertainty. I don't know what the best system is. That's why we should let everyone be free. You know, socialism, leftism, and so on, that all comes from this idiot Dunning-Kruger certainty stuff. Well, clearly we should just do X. We should have a welfare right. state. We should redistribute <laughs> this. The government should be in control of that. We should tax this. We should subsidize that. We should create green energy through the... Like, it's just, it's retarded. It's absolutely <laughs> retarded. It's stupid beyond words. And that's why the free market, which, which is founded on rational insecurity, I don't know what the best thing is for other people, other than don't kill people. <laughs> I mean, I get that. But I don't know what the best thing is for you to be fulfilled or for your boyfriend or for the – I don't know. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know how to solve the problem of poverty because I have humility and honesty. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how every – child in a giant continent should be educated. I don't know if they need two months off in the summer or if that's the worst idea ever. I don't know. I have no idea. And that's called having rational insecurity about the limits of your capacities. And that's a freedom comes from insecurity and rational humility. I don't know what is the best argument for X or Y or Z. Don't know. That's why we need free speech, so that I can hear all of the arguments put forward and I can somehow try and evaluate which ones seem the most compelling in the moment. I don't know. I don't know how much money should be spent on science. I don't know whether roads are the best way to move stuff from A to B. I don't know. How many people should live here or there? I don't know what kinds of buildings should be built. Therefore, I'm not going to put in zoning laws. I, I don't know. I don't know. And when you're young, when you have the rational humility of intelligence, people flock around you and will try to mentor you. Oh, you poor little thing. Did you break your wing? Here. Right. Let me help you. Let me help you. I'm happy to help you. Because they're idiots... And again, I'm exaggerating, but please be patient. <laughs> because they're idiots, they think they know the answers. And they're willing to give you the answers. And those answers can be somewhat helpful at times. It's fine. It's fine. But because you start off with rational humility, you don't know. What happens is you end up knowing a lot more than the people who think they know but don't. Mm -hmm. right? The people who think they know how the world should work, how things should be done, that analytical is just really bad, don't you know, Alison? And you need mm -hmm. to be more supportive, and you need to be more empathetic, and you need to be more whatever it's going to be, right? They just, they know for a fact. They know for a fact that it's rude for you to disagree with them about spanking, and you're not being a good friend, and for the last year you've been this, and you're too analytical. How the hell do they know what's going on for you? How the hell do they know? what being a great friend is. They mm -hmm. don't. But they jump to these conclusions based on emotional defensiveness because when you're not that smart, but you think you are, about 99.9% .9 of your life energies are spent protecting yourself from the deep knowledge you have of your own retarded limitations.
And this, this is a fundamental fact about human existence and human interactions. Most people are not very smart. They don't know the best way that society should be run. But they're arrogant. Arrogance comes from a lack of intelligence. Now, it doesn't mean smart people are always humble. Of course not, right? I mean, because smart people uh, can can be arrogant. But it's more of a wisdom kind of thing than a smart Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so there's this trajectory. And most people, they're a flat line. Sort of 50%. Dum-de-dum-de-dum, right? Maybe it declines a little as they get older. <laughs> but for the people who start off lower in the insecurity or humility thing, boom, you blow past them. And it usually happens in your 20s. You blow past them. You know, I mean, I, I wrote this book called Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. And for some reason, people, they accuse me of being arrogant for having worked so hard and I think successfully to solve the problem of secular ethics. They don't mm-hmm. understand... As I've said before in this show, they don't understand, Allison. This comes from a profound humility from me looking in the mirror and saying, I don't even know what goodness is. I don't even know what virtue is. I don't even know why we should be good. I don't know where moral rules come from. Now, how many people can say that? I mean, other than nihilists who sort of engorge themselves on the blood of downed virtues or whatever. But how many people can look in the mirror and say, you know what? I want to be good. I have no idea what goodness is. It can't be God's commandments. It can't just be following laws. Where does it come from? Is it all just cultural prejudice? Then it's not good. Any more than one dance is better than another dance. So if you started from a position of insecurity or a position of being more doubtful of the way to live and what to do, and your friends were more certain, you're going to pass them. You're going to be a steadily increasing line, and they're going to be flatlined. And you're going to pass them. And when you pass them, ooh, do they not like it? Why? Right. <laughs> Why don't they like it? Uh, well, it, I guess maybe it puts them in the inferior position and me in the superior, although my intent is to not have a power dynamic, but it just opens up for them what they don't know. And uncertainty can be really scary for some people. Yeah, you're you're passing them. You're passing them, and it it reveals to them that their certainty is false. But they fed on Mm. your being less than they are, so that when you pass them, they have to, boom, level you down with a giant hammer blow. Allison, for the last year, I've been afraid to tell you this, but you've been a terrible person. (laughs) whatever, right? I mean, that's what it usually boils down to. So as you pass them, you provoke a deep insecurity. And it is that deep insecurity that keeps them from asking questions, because it takes wisdom to be humble. You pass them, provokes this deep insecurity, and they need to hammer you back down. Right. Right. So, so if you look at your, the conversation you have with this woman, she invites you back to planet small, which is planet certain for idiots, right? Planet small, planet certain. And you say, okay, I'm fine, but we need some reality. Whoa! (laughs) No! (laughs) No! Oh, no! Oh, no, I can't have any reality, because that would indicate to me the smallness of my mind and positions. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and, you know, I really believed in, 
in some ways still believe, but I don't focus on it, that my former girlfriends have the capacity to explore what I'm doing and to live, you know, on not on planet small to, to just live in a, in a grandiose, humbled way. And I, I t- tend to really want to believe in the potential. And I think it's just, I have a more so natural talent talent for kind of developmental type conversations, kind of like coaching, mentoring. And um, you know, what, what I have learned is just, they did not want to sign up for it. And I did my part. And, you know, it was a bit of transition. It was tough. I mean, no one wants to feel isolated. I mean, I really did have a connection with them, but maybe it was a false connection. And as I learn more about what, you know, real empathy is and kind of getting clear on my principles and values, um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it was tough, but now I'm at a place where I realized it was worth it. But it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to somehow indicate and reading between the lines, so tell me if I'm reading too deeply, Alison. I don't want to indicate that you didn't have positive times with your friends beforehand or that relationships, oh, that relationship did not have mutual utility. And I don't mean that in a terrible way. It's just, I mean, all relationships should have mutual benefit, right? I mean, that's win-win, right? So you got to win because you had friends, you had fun, and they helped you in an area that you were deficient in, right? Dating mm-hmm. or whatever it was, right? So right. you got value. They got value because, you know, you're a fun person and so on. But they also got to feel superior because they mentored you. Mm-hmm. And so that, those, that was a mutually beneficial relationship. Unfortunately, it couldn't survive you transitioning to true adulthood and authenticity and individuation. Right. Because when you individuate, you don't want relationships based on a hierarchy. You don't want that. You want equality, right? Which is what I assume you have with your fiancé. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and figuring out the ha- middle ground and the win-win. Yeah. So you have that with your fiancé. So you've learned about win-win. So you go back to your friendships where there was sort of a um, – think of an X, right? They're feeding off your lack of knowledge and, and feeding their vanity by helping you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, it sounds bad. It's not. And you are feeding them by helping them feel more vain. Unfortunately, that – whole equation cannot survive your growth. Mm -hmm. Because if you grow and you outstrip their wisdom, then the whole thing short circuits because you then don't need their knowledge because their knowledge no longer helps you because you've moved beyond what they can instruct you on, number one. And number two, your very growth threatens the vanity that they got from being your mentor and helping you along. So it goes from a great plus on both sides to a great minus. Well, a medium minus on your side, but a great minus on their side. In your opinion, I mean, at this point, I don't think I have anybody who's kind of left that represent who I was that, you know, that my very close circle (laughs) has vacated. But in your opinion, say I do end up in a similar situation again. How do I navigate it to be on the terms of growth? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I haven't had time to prepare for it, so I'm gonna. I have no answer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, how do you know if a relationship is more egalitarian? Yeah. Well, one thing is that if you teach someone something new, they say, "Hey, thank you." 
I appreciate that new information. I never thought of it that way before. That's fascinating. Where did you get these facts? I right. I never heard this information before. How interesting. How did you learn about these facts, Allison? Hey, where did you get them from? What interested you in this topic to begin with? I'm really fascinated by that. Tell me more. Actually, that's right. what's happening. And one of, one of my uh, friends that I've met in these last couple of years, she asked me, she said, I always thought you were liberal, but what I'm noticing is I think you're conservative. And she was curious about it. And I was like, I'm so happy to talk to you about this. And it was really nice because she listened. It wasn't just kind of, you're not respecting my right to an opinion or I'm going to challenge you on this. Because, yeah, it was just, it, was, it felt really good to know that that was there. Right. You're breaking the constrictive sisterhood of tininess. <laughs> no, now, I mean, to, 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 to keep your eye on that, if she's saying, huh, Allison, I thought you were in this box. I think you're in this box, though. I mean, that's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, she'll, she'll understand that conservative and, and liberal, not hugely helpful when it comes to philosophy. When it comes to voting, I guess, right? But when it comes to philosophy, you want to think originally and, and all that. But, you know, it's nice. She's not sitting there saying, oh, I thought you were my friend as a liberal. It turns out you're one of those evil conservative racists, right? Whatever, right? Um, so she's just like, wow, you, you really surprised me. Tell me more. You know, there's, there's, there's words and there's antonyms. I'm just going to give you two because I literally could do this all day. And, and in my mind, sometimes I do. Uh, number one, number one, um, the opposite of I hate you is tell me more. The opposite okay. of I hate you is tell me more. And this is really, really important for people to understand. Anytime you surprise people with new information and they don't say, tell me more, they're saying, I hate you. And this is a, a description, maybe a strong description, but it's something I think could be defended with regards to your earlier friendships. Mm -hmm. The opposite of I respect you is not an argument. The opposite of I love you is not an argument. Because it, and not an argument is, is uh, a statement of dismissal and contempt. Mm -hmm. Well, first it's an invitation. Somebody says, Bleh, and you say, not an argument. And then they say, well, what do you mean, not an argument? And then you can have a conversation. But if they just double down or run away, well, it's a confirmed statement of contempt. Anyway, <laughs> but um, <laughs> so somebody who's saying, um, somebody who's saying, you have new information, tell me more, is somebody who has the ego strength to be instructed. You know, I, I do all these interviews and I talk with listeners who surprise me with fantastic information. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly willing to be instructed. I mean, if you look at how my views have changed over the 10 years I've been doing this publicly, it's because I'm willing to be instructed. I'm willing to absorb new information, hopefully synthesize it in a way that's digestible and entertaining and deliver it to a waiting and striking world. And... Anybody who's not curious about you is using you. Everybody who's not open to you is feeding on you. Because it takes ego strength and intelligence to be open to new ideas and new arguments. And most people are a fortress of fragility. Right. I, wrote, I wrote in a poem once, many years ago, about a man I said, he is nothing but a hide of bright armor. He is nothing but a hide of bright armor. 
I like the word hide because it's got that double meaning, something like uh, the hide of an animal, but also hidden, bright right. armor. It's dazzling. It's shiny. It's cool. But there's nothing inside. It seems very solid, but there's no heart inside. There's no blood. There's no brain. Nothing but a hide of bright armor. And that's true of people. And the way that you know if somebody is interested in equality is they're unoffended by originality. They're unoffended by being surprised by new facts. And if they jump to conclusions and attack, it's because, in my opinion, they're nothing more than a hide of bright armor. That makes a lot of sense for what my experience has been. And you didn't notice it till you had someone like your fiance who says, tell me more. And you had other friends who said, tell me more. You know, mm -hmm. you can put up with eating bad food and think it's fine until you eat really good food. And then you're like, oh, right. <laughs> oh this is what it's supposed to taste like. Yeah, I know At exactly first what orgasm. You mean. Oh, this is what ninety-five <laughs> percent of the internet is. All, whatever it is, right? Uh, so yeah, it is. Um, you know, once you get it, you, it's really hard to go back, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, and then just the other part of my question was related to just female friendships and the whole wedding thing. Really, just invite me to a wedding to dance on the floor and eat some food. I will be great entertainment, but don't ask me to be a bridesmaid because <laughs> I'm not in them. I was supposed to be in a few weddings last year, but because of moving to Australia, my plans changed. And there's a lot of associated meanings with weddings, especially for females. And, and actually one of, one of my girlfriends said to me, oh, so you're willing to move away and risk the friendships. And looking back, I, I didn't respond to that particularly. I responded to something else. Sorry, and they said saying, what? Well, my one of my girlfriends, when I relayed the news to her that I wouldn't be I was supposed to be her maid of honor. So I know it's like girl code, cardinal rule. Number one, you, you don't not be the maid of honor. Um, but I said to her or she said to me, well, if you're moving to Australia, you know what? You're willing to lose your friendships. And looking back, my thoughts are, well, why does it have to be a this or that? You know, why is it if I do one thing, if I make a choice to do something else, why does that then become a question of the friendship? Similar to what we were talking about earlier in the call when you know, I was talking about parenting and then my friend was like, oh, I haven't been honest with you in the friendship. It just, it was the same thing that happened in these conversations regarding weddings. Yeah. And in my view, it's a lie. If somebody says, oh, I haven't been honest. They don't say that like they've done a bad thing, right? Like if, if she's no. been lying to you for a year and pretend like that's really that's she's being a terrible friend. But the I haven't been honest to you is something they say in the moment to really dig the fish hooks into your emotional eyeballs. Because mm -hmm. then you go oh, the whole year and puts everything into doubt, puts you in the defensive, makes everything destabilize around you. So they win. Right. Yeah. Why couldn't it's, you? It's... Uh, why couldn't you? Um, I mean, why couldn't you fly back for? the wedding? Well, I could have. It just would have been demanding on myself. I, I um, work for a company. I, re I work remote for a company. And so being abroad, I was working weird hours, 
or am working weird <laughs> hours. I just, I'm just um, enjoying the being abroad, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> being abroad. And um, yeah, so, you know, I was balancing my kind of crazy work schedule. Um, I moved in quite a few different areas, even though I've always had employment, but, you know, all my moves kind of has to do a little bit with budget reasonings too. You know, am I willing to spend my time and money to fly back for something that's going to be a few hours of time? Um, you know, can I celebrate in a different way? Plus I gave about six to seven months heads up that I wouldn't be in the wedding. So we could have done something before I left just to commemorate the, you know, special event that it represents. You could have flown in for a day, couldn't you? I'm not saying you should have. I'm just trying to understand like the barriers. Yeah. I mean, I could have, I didn't want to. Okay. So, so let's talk about you not wanting to rather than the technicalities, right? Sure. I mean, to take a to take an extreme example, if you had some illness and the only way you could cure it was to go to America or wherever the wedding was happening, you'd have done that, right? So it's a matter of prioritization rather than coordination. Yes, definitely. Okay, so so let's forget, forget the obstacles. Let's talk about the why you didn't want to. Yeah, well, I. Well, number one, didn't want to be responsible for anything. And being a bridesmaid comes, in my opinion, comes with a lot of unnecessary stuff to do. Even though there's some brides that they're not bridezillas, they're kind of just your normal bride. I just don't like all the associated activities with it. I don't like the mandatory buy a dress, have a specific color. Um, I don't like the extra nonsense type events. You know, there's a shower, a dinner, a rehearsal, a this, a that. And I just don't like it. Right. Wait, you don't <laughs> like being unpaid labor to hysterical people? <laughs> What's that the matter with you? Good way frame. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it'd be one thing if, knowing that the, the conversations were so difficult, it didn't want me to come on back. I mean, it was a matter of you're in my wedding or you're not. And I actually did with one of my friends when I was telling her I wanted to move to Australia. I, we ended up resolving the conversation where I was like, okay, I'll go to Australia, but I will fly back and I'll definitely do this for you. And it didn't feel right. And I think because it would just cost me a lot more. I mean, you know, not necessarily budget wise, but just in terms of I'd be kind of sacrificing myself just to make sure that I'm present for something. And yeah, they, ultimately they just aren't priorities for me. I really don't care for weddings. I feel really bad saying that. I always feel like brides hate me as a result. <laughs> All right. A lot of what you said. Um, and before we get to what you don't like about weddings, I mean, isn't it, I don't mean to put it too boldly, but um, didn't you just not love them enough to make the sacrifice? It's not a criticism. I mean, isn't that just a a fact? Yeah, which, you know, I feel pretty shitty. I feel bad that that's kind of how I feel. Oh, no, forget that. Oh, I'm going to judge myself. So it's, it's just a fact, <laughs> I, right? I, yeah. Don't, don't be offended by facts because then you're becoming your friends, right? Or your ex-friends. Yeah. You don't ever want to become an ex-friend to yourself, right? No, definitely not. Okay, so this is just a fact that you did not love them at this point enough to make the sacrifice. Right. Okay, and, and this is without judgment. That's just a fact. You know, people all come up with these obstacles. Well, you know, it was complicated and it was difficult and it was this and I had to change two buses. And it's like, come on. <laughs> that, that, that's why we have love. We have love so that obstacles mean nothing. 
Nothing. That's why, that's what love is. Love is, I don't care about the obstacles. You know, let me tell you, Allison, when I first started podcasting, I had to figure out XML all on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love philosophy so much that I'm willing to do it. Right. So the love overcomes the obstacles. That's how you know it's love. Because well, if there's that's no obstacles, kind of how I know like, I love so, my fiance. <laughs> I was just yeah, just if you're, whatever, if you moved to Australia here. for God's sakes, do you know how big the spiders <laughs> are in Australia? What are you crazy? <laughs> They're the size of dinner plates. They can be frisbees. There's like that <laughs> thing in Alien that sticks its wiener down your throat and lays an egg in your chest. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still remembering going to Africa when I was six and seeing bugs the size of biplanes. I thought I was in a World War One movie. <laughs> <laughs> So you loved this guy enough to go to Australia. <laughs> now, don't right. get me wrong. Australians are very nice people. I love the Australians. But the bugs. The bugs. And there's a lot of toads, according to a documentary I once watched with my daughter. But um, <laughs> Although toads are cool. But um, so th- there, you wouldn't say, well, you know, okay, nice enough guy, but... Australia, I don't think so. Well, it just means you don't love them enough, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I was willing to not have my job, to just start from the ground up yet again and, like, make another big move for myself. And I'm Were there willing any to sharks? do whatever it takes. Were there any sharks in your original neighborhood? Any sharks in my original neighborhood in the States? Before you moved to Australia? No. Okay. A lot of sharks around Australia. Love scuba diving myself. Always wanted to go to the Great Barrier Reef. Still, quite a lot of sharks. So if you're willing to put up with sharks, that's a lot of love. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> they do have a bunch of crazy animals. It, it, sometimes I walk through the park and there's birds that I've just never seen before. Yes, and they're all being crazy eaten species. by the giant spiders. Sorry. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I have a spider thing. I'm sorry. I always have. <laughs> okay. If it helps, I haven't come across any spiders. Don't go to that play center, children. Those aren't ropes. They're spider webs. Sorry. <laughs> now I'm going to give myself bad dreams. And since I love sleeping, I should stop this particular part of the conversation, which is not helpful to you in any way whatsoever. So, so no, this is just if you don't want to do something, that's just empirical evidence that you don't love the outcome enough or you don't love the people involved enough. And it's not a criticism. It's just it's a basic fact, right? Yeah, it's true. It's not a deficiency. And- I just want to be able to say it without adding on my extra meanings. And you've explained it in a way that helps me remove that kind of self-judgment because it's just, it's just the reality. It's just what happened. I just didn't want to do it. And I wanted to get to Australia because, you know, who, who I'm with, my fiance is exactly the person I want to be with. And he's, you know, very grounded in philosophy. And so I would go to hell and back again to make sure we, you know, are in a relationship forever. So you go to hell and back again, and you won't go to your friend's wedding, which means that <laughs> your friend's wedding is worse than hell itself relative oh to your love, right? I just made that analogy. Yeah. No, listen. It, it's, not, it's not that it's worse than hell. It's just that the love is not there, right? Yeah. And this, look, it's fine. So th- there's a couple of reasons why this could be. There's a couple of reasons why this could be. And, and we'll just, you know, just throw them out there and see if they – 
see if they stick, right? This is one of these, uh, you, you, you throw the Velcro ball against the wall and find the Velcro on the wall, right? It's just boop, 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 it's really good to throw, right? Number one, number one, you don't like who they're marrying and don't respect their choice. Yeah, that makes sense for some of them. Okay, that's number one. And, uh, of course, when you get involved in the wedding, you know, one of the things, and this is an honorable thing, right, one of the things that, um, one of the reasons why weddings happen is they have this famous phrase, right, at the beginning or some at some point in the wedding. They say, if there is any among you who knows of any reason why this man and woman should not be joined together in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace, right? Mm-hmm. Would you yep, be stuffing gym that. socks into your mouth at that point? I probably wouldn't even think it's a question you're supposed to answer. So I would just oh, it, smile it came and along look at the audience. Reason. No, it came along for a reason. And the reason it came along is that's when you say it. And if you don't, the forever hold your peace means, everyone, this is your last chance. Last chance. After this, it is a non-refundable purchase. <laughs> After this, you break it, you buy it, you bang it, you bought it, right? And forever hold your peace, what that means is that if you don't say anything to your friend about, I don't know if this is the right guy for you, I don't know if you know much about love, I don't know if you've got a realistic perspective, I don't know if you've got any plans, I don't know if he's got a future, I don't know if you've got the savings, I don't know if you're going to be good parents, I don't know if you're going to spay, whatever, right? What that means is that if you go and you are the bridesmaid, you have to help that couple stay together forever. If you don't think you can do that job, you shouldn't be a bridesmaid. If you're yeah, not 150% behind the wedding, like this is the best thing ever. These guys are perfect for each other. I respect this love. I respect their choices. They're going to be great parents. They're going to make wonderful decisions. They're going to be proud and noble and courageous and there for each other and great people all around. That's what you're going to celebrate, not a tall and wobbly cake and some men falling over in suits because they were up too late, right? That, that's not, it, it's for the admiration of the love that is in the hall or in the church. And if you can't go there and say, oh man, if these guys ever even think about breaking up, I'm going to like, they really need to be together for their whole lives because they're the best two people for each other and some of the best people. I that's what being a bridesmaid is. If you can't get there, you shouldn't be there. Yeah, and I think it also shows how much this type of philosophy is missing from those kind of friendships. Because this all makes so much sense to me and gives a lot of reason to how I was feeling and trying to articulate what was going on to them. And wow, I mean, it's just this is just such an area that's a complete deficit. And from my experience, I'd say an absolute deficit in most female friendships. Well, and at some Maybe most men's too, right? You've, you've, you've listened to... If, uh, <laughs> oh, no, spider got my tongue. Sorry. Um, that's why it, it, in a show recently, like I thought there was a bit of fluff in the studio, but it was a spider coming down from the ceiling. Anyway. Um, <gasps> I really hope you don't come across a spider anytime soon. Well, it's okay if they're small. It's just, you know, on yeah, YouTube, there's like 10 gigantic. terrifying things that live in Australia and uh, yeah. <laughs> fewer migrants. So... Um, no, it, it, the number of people who've called into this show 
Oh, we just had one in Lusco. And they say, oh, yeah, you know, I married this man, I married this woman, and it really was a bad idea. And it was pretty obvious that it was going to be a bad idea, but nobody said anything. Nobody said anything. Have you ever tried to say to a girlfriend, I don't think he's the guy for you? Have I? I feel I don't think so. Oh, you'd remember that one. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Yeah, you know, I really didn't. I think that one of my girlfriends, um, she's with someone, you know, who has the potential to be the kind of guy I think she deserves to be with. And uh, she kind of rushed into the relationship. And I think how it played out is that she wanted to make sure we both got along. And, you know, we did on a surface level. And I think that was enough for her. Wow. You know, it's like you have a different voice when you switch into propaganda mode. It's quite something. <laughs> Did I did I just relay propaganda? You just yeah, you just gave me a big big bunch of squishy nothing. Ah, okay, good good to know. Actually, I so do the, feel the that my voice sounds a little remember different. If you'd ever have, if you ever have a conversation with someone who's in a serious relationship where you say, mm, 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 I can't see it. I can't. Here's why. You bring out the list, volume one, whatever. Right? You bring out the list. You always remember those because those are, um make or break moments in the relationship. You're putting everything on the line, right? You're putting everything on the line because that's one you can't shoot and miss, right? Because if you say, let's say the woman's been dating a guy for six months or whatever, he's the one or whatever, and you say, eh, no, you know, he's got this, 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 and this, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's not going to work out, I'm pretty sure. Well, what if she decides to keep dating him? Yeah, I don't. I don't know what I would do. I, I think there'd be a natural dissonance that happens. You know, we. Yeah, don't tell me you wouldn't ways. remember that conversation. That's true. So, so I, you know what? I've never had that kind of conversation. I had a friendship end that way. Would you like to hear the very brief story? I remember yeah. it very well. Oh boy, what happened? Husband had problem with wife. Husband complained to me about wife. I said, "Well, she can be a little bit aggressive and insensitive at times." Blah de blah de blah. Husband goes back to wife. <laughs> Husband <laughs> then has fight with fight with wife and says, "Oh yeah, you know who else thinks you're a real bitch, Steph." <laughs> oh no! What happened to that friendship? Mm. <laughs> Smoking crater, the way of mm. the dinosaur, big footprints, neutron bomb, nobody there. Because I'm not going to go in there and sit and say, well, you know, it was more nuanced than that. Yeah, I think you can be a little aggressive and I think you can be a little insensitive and so on. But I didn't call you that word. And therefore, he escalated and causing more problems. Ah, right. Right. And, well, and also the fact that she's so offended when he's just kind of relaying his observation of what's going on. Well, what, what, what's going to happen the next time he complains to be about his marriage if I stay friends with him? Hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to have to plead the fifth because you're going to escalate it and throw it at your wife in some argument and then things are going to get even worse. Let's go for tea. Uh, right. <laughs> I didn't actually call you that. I it's like, have another problem with your husband now who escalated things when I didn't say, so, oh, oh, forget it. Oh, forget it. Okay, how can you trust, right? You tell people things in confidence. That's a vault. You don't, that's a vault. Don't spill. Don't squeal. 
Yeah. And then you, you can't be yourself either. It just be, you become this like stifled version of yourself around certain people. And then you're like trying to put on an act and uh, it's just tiring. And that's kind of what my experience was. I got to a point and I'm still trying to learn and understand it so that I can be truly my most authentic self and leading with integrity is very important to me. And I still see these areas that I got to work on. And, um, you know, I, I just got to a place in many of these friendships where I was just at a standstill and I, I felt kind of, I don't know, yeah, stifled, I guess would be the word and, and feeling like I, I couldn't be free. And when I mentioned it to some people where I'd say, yeah, I couldn't be free, they're just, you know, turn the head kind of question mark, like, what does that mean? And to me, it, it just, I, I completely understand intrinsically what that is. And finding people who get it, it has been a little bit of a challenge. But fortunately, my fiance, who's you know, years ahead and practices this daily has been an absolute rock. And, and also with his, all right, all right. I'm sorry. Well, you've, gone, so. you've gone back into propaganda mode. Propaganda. It's the best yeah, thing that ever happened. No, it's, you know what it's like? It's like you become this travelogue salesman, you know, it's like this condo has an open view of the beach and it has a gym. And it's like, you, you go into this goo that I can't quite follow because let's go back to the French. Do you want to vomit? No, no, <laughs> Does it no. Does like this total a, vomiting worthy? It's, you not, know? it's not vomiting. That's a strong reaction. I, I just notice it. That's all because I'm like, whoa, beginning to space out. Normally, gotcha. very good listener. What is happening? Oh no, yeah, she's no. propagandizing. At least that's my uh, thought. I appreciate it. Let's go back to your friends. Let's go back to your friends. Okay. In your friendships... The, the ones that, let's say the ones that didn't work out, right? How much can you tell the truth? How much are you biting your tongue? How much are you conforming? How much are you hiding? How much are you spacing out? And I think it's a lot because you make me space out and it's hard to make me space out. So mm. I think you're reproducing that. Whenever we get close to the real conflicts within your friendships, you spew up mm. a whole bunch of like little nonsense propaganda, which causes me to space out. And so I assume that that's what happened with your friendships, your female friendships, that you get to close to some level of conflict and you're all just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you know, I did, I, I overall know, couldn't tell them the truth. And when I did, um, <laughs> terrible, I left them, a, I left a couple of them a voicemail. I said, look, the truth is I just didn't want to be in your wedding. And one of my girlfriends got back to me and she said, I, cannot even fathom this. I really can't, I just cannot be friends with you. And she, it was, I didn't know if we were friends. It was about a four month period. And then I told her the truth again, you know, but more outlined where I was like, look, sorry, I just didn't want to be in your wedding. And it was okay. Friendship end. So I'd say I got as close to the truth as I could. Oh my God. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. Oh, it's okay. It's, it is. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Hang on. Okay. Voicemail. Yeah. Voicemail. Oh, come Voicemail, on. Email. I initially. I hey, had here we go. I'm going to make a quick voicemail. Hey, quick voicemail. I crashed your car. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had do sex that. with your sister. Bye. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I didn't do that, but I did leave a voicemail. Yeah. No, come on. Voicemail. Voicemail. Seriously? Yeah. You can't think that's going to work. Not face to face. I don't want to come to your wedding. Click. Or something like that. Not sitting down and stepping someone through. Right. That's that's a grenade, right? Yeah, it is. I, I dropped bombs for sure. Okay. And that means that you can't tell the truth. And the way that you want to confirm that you can't tell the truth is to tell the truth in such a cold manner that the other person's going to blow up and you're going to be free of the friendship wherein you can't tell the truth. Yep. That's what happened. 
Okay, good. So we're on the same page. So how painful is it now that you have a relationship where you can tell the truth with your fiance, I assume? How painful is it to be in a relationship where you can't tell the truth? Yeah, I don't need, I don't ever want to have that kind of friendship again. It's And that's why you leave a voicemail. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wanted to, no, no, yeah, that's exactly why I left the voicemail. I can't even justify it. That's exactly the reason. Yeah, that has to be a face-to-face, even if it's over Skype. That has to be a face-to-face. You have to bring it up slowly. You have to talk it out patiently and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and I had Skype with one with one of them, and it, and it resulted in her crying and me kind of reacting to it. Oh, no, she's her. Oh, no, okay, yes, I will be at your wedding. So now that I have a better understanding for how emotions work and how they're used and what they mean, um, you know, I, I could have still kind of been like, sorry, I can't be in your wedding, but let's talk about it a little bit more and had more of an open-ended conversation. Whereas I don't think I was, I was capable of doing that. Hence leaving voicemails and chatting an email with a lot of people. Right. Right. Okay. So you're in a relationship where you can't tell the truth and listen, I'm not saying everything, you know, I have a terrible butt itch right now. That's that's for for everyone's ringtone if they want it. Right. So, you know, it's not the TMI blurp, right? You don't have to write whatever. Right. But um, Mm -hmm. look, I have this odd mole in my armpit. What do you think? I mean, but but when it comes to just being able to tell the truth about things that are important in an appropriate context and so on, or are you – you know, like an exorcism, you drive a ghost out of a building. Is your friendship like an exorcism for your identity out of your body? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. It, I think I just was kind of a shell version of myself for an extremely long time. Right. And, you know, what was mirrored were these friendships that I developed. And um, I, I think it was just this kind of emotional connection they had, but it was more so I was fitting a need and probably that, that helping part you mentioned, the superior, inferior part. And then I pulled myself out of it. Right. Are you ready for my sisterhood of the traveling rants? I would love to hear it. Okay, here we go. This is not just friendship. This is everything. Everything. Listen. Allison, have I disagreed with you at certain times in this conversation? Yes. Are you alive? I'm alive. Is it okay that I've disagreed with you? Absolutely. I mean... I haven't done it in a way that is negative or offensive towards you, and I haven't done it in a way that says I'm completely right. I'm just telling you what I think, and I've disagreed with you, and Mm -hmm. we're fine, right? In fact, that's the only reason people are listening to this, right? The only reason people are listening to you and I talk is that we have the capacity to disagree with each other and enjoy the conversation all the more thereby. You can disagree with me, and I can disagree with you. 
And this capacity to disagree, that's all, all that freedom is at a very foundational level. And I mean this at a deep emotional level, in a relational level, in a friendship level, in a love level, in a political level, everywhere. All freedom is, is the freedom to disagree. And all I've been talking about for 10 long years is I want the freedom to disagree. I want the freedom to disagree with other people's choices. I want the freedom to disagree with what they think will solve poverty, the welfare state. I want the freedom to disagree with things they think should be banned, like drugs. I want the freedom to disagree with how children get educated. I want the freedom to disagree with everyone. And I want to give them that same freedom to disagree with me. Mm-hmm. And this is why the social justice warrior lefty censorship crap is so vile. Why, it's so, why we, we get that sense that it's a fundamentally tyr- tyrannical is there's no freedom to disagree. Because disagreement is evil. Disagreement is racism, sexism, xenophobia, whatever, right? Where you, yeah, absolutely. Where you, where you have no freedom to disagree, you have no freedom. You know, in the Soviet Union, there were central planners. And they said, here's what needs to be built, here's what needs to be made, and here is where it needs to be delivered and what, what time and at what price. And you weren't free to disagree. You weren't free to compete. You are not free to disagree with central banking. Got to use their currency. Got to pay your taxes. I mean, you can go live in the woods. But that's like saying I have freedom of speech if I cut my tongue off. You can be banished. It's not the same as freedom. And so the freedom to disagree, this is why I'm sort of saying foundationally that what you're, what you're examining here, I think, Allison, is what does it mean to be free? All voluntarism is, all a stateless society is, is having the freedom to disagree. Can I follow my own conscience without being thrown in jail and being shot down if I resist that process? People are free to disagree with me, and they do, and I welcome it. I treasure it. The degree to which people criticize me is the degree to which they respect and recognize that I'm an honorable, decent person. Because they're free to disagree with me, which means that they know that I value their rights and capacity to disagree with me. Now, whether they're rational or not doesn't fundamentally matter. Look at all the groups where no one feels free to disagree with them. Ooh, <laughs> little tyrannical now, isn't it? And so when it comes to your relationships, are you free to disagree? You had a relationship with a woman. You disagreed with her about spanking. Were you free to do that? I was not. You were not. You were not free to disagree with her. She said, if you disagree with me, there's no relationship. What that means is, there's no relationship anyway. Wherever you're not free to disagree with someone, you can't be with them because you can't spontaneously process your experience of them and your thoughts and share them in the real-time relationship way, right? This real-time relationship is a book I've written. You can get it at freedomainradio.com slash free. I'm sure you've had some experience with it, but for those who haven't, you can't spontaneously say what you think and feel in the moment because if you disagree with that person, boom, 
Down you go. Into the trapdoor of bye-bye. That is tyranny. All the tyrannies in the world comes come out of that inability to disagree with people. And it comes from childhood. Are you free to disagree with your parents? So, Alison, as you knew, it probably would. Let us return to your earlier days. Yeah. When you were growing up, were you free to disagree with authority figures? No. Right. And that conditions you to not feel free. And it conditions you just, it doesn't just condition you to not feel free with your friends. It means you must choose friends who won't let you disagree. You understand? I do. Yeah, I'm definitely following. So... To disagree is dangerous. Now, if you lose a friend as an adult, that's tragic. If you lose a parent or a parent's love as a child, that's fatal biologically, right? I mean, historically, evolutionarily, and so on. And kids couldn't take that risk, right? You understand? Yeah, definitely. So it must be death to disagree and virtuous to agree. That's why... We end friendships with people who disagree with us if we're immature. And that's why we call agreeing with us out of fear support. Because that's how we're raised. We can't disagree with our parents a lot of times. We can't disagree with our teachers. We can't disagree with our priests. It's not allowed. And what is threatened is a withdrawal of love and support, which is essential for children to survive. Right. Yeah, and the undoing, uncovering is where I'm at now in my life. Right. See, now I'm going to assume with your fiancé, who I know listens to this show, just because you mentioned it, but um, are you free to disagree with him? I am. Right. I'm very free in this relationship. In fact, I have made it where sometimes he's not free and he oh, he's very quick he's very good at reading through it and making sure i understand what i'm saying and so you know i'm learning to make sure that he's free as well right right and that's why you'll move to australia not to be with him you understand fundamentally allison you did not move to australia to be with him but to be with you yeah, that's a great way of saying it. I never thought of it that way. You have a potent mix of man candy, authenticity, and giant spiders. <laughs> that is the holy trinity of self-actualization. <laughs> and deep down, I believe, fear and hatred often go hand in hand. This is not a staggeringly original insight for me, just so you understand. It's not like, ooh, I'm the only one, right? But fear and hatred go hand in hand. If that's true, and if we only conform with other people out of fear, then we must hate them for the implicit threat that they're always holding over us, which is conform or be rejected. Now, if it's true 
that we only conform with people out of fear and we hate that which we fear. You got your own back and you acted out your hatred with your voicemails. Very true. Which is something like, screw you for forcing me to lie all these years. Screw you for pretending you cared about me when all you cared about was my conformity. Bye bye Here's my stink bomb. I'm out of here. Yep. And why not, be a, why not be a bridesmaid? Because who wants to spend a week lying in a bad dress? Yeah. And faking and pretending and... Just exhausting. Yeah, oh, exactly. it is. <laughs> and it's only exhausting. This is, you know, this is why people who make you lie want to keep truth tellers away from you because once you get a taste of that sweet nectar, it's really tough to go back. Oh, this is what it's like when I don't wear yak hair underpants. Ooh, that's really silky. I like that. And then people will say, hey, time to get back into the yak hair underpants. You're like, ooh, no, I don't want to. Let me let me live in this silk. It's delightful. I'm floating like gossamer. <laughs> By the way, I'm actually fairly sure that yak hair underpants are available. Uh, I was going to say, is that, a, is that a thing? Do people actually do people actually wear that? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're available on Milo Yiannopoulos' shop. Milo swag. It's actually pretty funny. You should, you should check it out. But anyway, um, so that's you know that's sort of the level that. I see this kind of stuff going at, um, which is um, if you've got an ounce of pride and you have more than an ounce of pride, but if you have an ounce of pride, Allison, it's really not that much fun to be bullied into conformity and silence and support and call it friendship. It's right. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, everything here was exactly what I was looking for when I had reached out with my question originally. It was trying to get some answers and deeper meaning and understanding. And um, I think this is a full picture. Hopefully this doesn't sound like propaganda, but I do just want to express my appreciation for your time and sorting through this with me. Wait, this is an elegant way of flushing, right? We're done? <laughs> it's okay. You know I, I thought I'd be going the other way. Turns out the Coriolanus <laughs> effect is a myth. But, yeah. I, well, I do feel that my uh, a lot of my answers. No, if my you're done with me, answered. that's fine. If if you if you're done with me, if I'm if I'm just a Kleenex, I'm just kidding. No, that's good. I'm I'm glad that we we got to where you wanted to get to, and I'm glad the conversation was helpful. Yeah, absolutely, it was. Thank you so much. All right. Will you keep us posted? Well, uh, let us know when you get married. I'd like to see a picture or two if you don't mind. I sure will. Definitely, will right. send that along. Thanks for the call, Allison. A real pleasure to chat. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Up next is Robert. Robert wrote in and said, How is it that the modern political left is able to claim a mantle of intellectual superiority? Is it possible to imagine a world in which political agreement is not taken as a measure of intelligence? That's from Robert. Yeah, hey, Robert. How are you doing? Good evening, Stefan. I'm hanging in there. Good. Good. All right. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about what you mean? This hide of bright armor is first and foremost looking for a bit of a pick-me-up uh, because right now we're all staring down the barrel of, what, three months, four months, five months of just being referred to as idiots for whoever it is that you plan to vote for. 
Um, and for some reason, this election cycle, it's just getting to me a little bit more than usual, I guess. What do you mean for some reason? I mean, there's every good reason why the, um, the escalation is occurring. Because somebody from outside the system has come into the system and is disrupting the system. And that's a scary thing for a lot of folks, isn't it? Yeah, well, I don't, I mean, like I care. I mean, nobody cared about, uh, you know, me being called a racist because of my race. And nobody cared about me being called a sexist because of my gender. And, you know, I mean, sorry. I mean, there's just not a lot of... uh, not a lot of deposits in the old compassion bank for society for me at the moment these days. So, yeah, I guess it is scary for some people. And I guess uh, they'll deal with it the way that uh, I've dealt with it. Mm-hmm. I was, I was going to remark, I've, I'm feeling that I'm having sort of a similar experience to Allison and the previous callers on there, though in my case, it's more a matter of professional uh, stability than a question of friendship. Uh, Allison was having the problem, do I be true to ideas or do I keep my friends? Uh, in my case, it's, you know, can I wrestle openly with these ideas or can I keep my career? Um, I find myself, you know, in, in some respects sort of behind enemy lines. Uh, I am a classically trained musician and I work for a, uh, a large church in a downtown area. And I, I would not be able to do my job uh, if it were to become open public knowledge that you know I vote for certain people or that I entertain certain ideas uh, because that would that would be an obstacle for a lot of the people that I have to work with. Right, right, right. You, Allison had remarked, or you remarked, Allison. I uh, one of her friends had said, "Well, I thought you were in this box, but I." Uh, I'd find out that you're actually in this box. Well, in, in my case, professionally, I have to interact with everybody in the church. Uh, I have to direct the choir. I have to direct the music. They have to be able to interact with me as Rob the musician. You know, that, that's, I only get 90 minutes a week with these people. I've got a job to do. Uh, and if there's any distraction to that, that would compromise my ability to do my job. Uh, and so basically, I just have to keep my head down. Okay. I still don't hear a question in that. I mean, I'm sorry that that's the situation. Um, it is. But, I mean, I, I had that restriction in a variety of fields and got tired of it and started becoming a podcaster. So, so right. The question is, how is it that it's a multifaceted question. Where does the link between academia and progressivism come from? Let's, let's start with that. Well, I mean, progressivism is anti-market, and so is academia. Academia is specifically and explicitly anti-market. It is a government-granted monopoly that grants government-granted papers. Okay. But, but why should that be that they would be explicitly anti-market? What do you mean? So I'm, I'm trying to lay some groundwork here as far as why would it be that, that academia would be explicitly anti-market? Because, come on, this is not that complicated, because they get more money and resources okay. by being anti-market. Right? Because, well, because, it, because they get to work three or five or ten hours a week. They get sabbaticals. They get four months off in the summer. They can't be fired. I mean, put, put that down in your next job application to McDonald's. Put that down in your next job application for being a podcaster. All right, I'll make podcasts, but I want to get paid enormously. I want to have huge benefits. 
I want to have sick leave. I want to have teacher's assistance that I don't have to pay personally. I want you to set me up with a beautiful lab and a giant library. I want guaranteed job security, guaranteed income, four months off in the summer. And I only want to work five or 10 or maybe 15 hours a week. Maybe then I'll be a podcaster. Yeah, good luck with that. Well, that, that's a good description of, of modern academics. I'm thinking back historically, some of the greatest sponsors of universities uh, were the barons of industry. You know, University of Chicago has a number of buildings named after the Rockefellers. Um, Andrew Dixon White up at Cornell. Uh, what, I mean, he made his money outside and then turned it into but academia. So it it, but no, no, yeah. that's a market. Charity okay. is a market as well. So if you wanted to go to Rockefeller and you wanted to say, sponsor my academics, he'd have to say, okay, are they good? Mm -hmm. Are they cool? Are they doing great work? Not necessarily do I agree with them all, although that may be part of it. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to sell your academics to the Rockefellers. So you still have a market. Okay. And then you'd have to sell your academics to their students. But now, government pays for everything or forces people to lend money, mm -hmm. and there's no market. So, the, so in, in your mind, this would be something that goes back, say, to the GI Bill after World War II or some of the higher education reforms back in the 1960s, which is what pushed it in that direction? Yeah, I mean, whenever the market got stripped out, for sure. Uh-huh. The GI Bill was the primary way in which socialism was infected into the um, hitherto middle classes or working classes, which then created a lot of the um, goofy, dangerous stuff that happened in the 60s, uh, the hippie movement, free love, and partly it was the pill, but a lot of it had to do with the socialism that was spread like a cancer uh, across um, the American intellectual landscape uh, as a result of the uh, GI Bill. And uh, all of that um, took, took the market out of things, right? And uh, when the market's out of things, then once government is paying, then what happens is the demand goes up infinitely, virtually, right? Mm -hmm. And once the demand goes up infinitely, and you no longer need to sell to industry or sell to the media or sell to whoever the quality of your graduates, well, what happens is you want to stuff as many graduate, uh, sorry, as many students into your university as humanly possible. Right, because they're all spending somebody else's money and it's not real yeah. to them. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're not making a business decision, which is how much money I'm going to be able to extract out of this degree that I'm pursuing. Now they're saying, oh, I've got free money to go to school. Where, where will I go? Well, I'll take something that's fun because the money's already there. You know, it's like saying, what shall I do for a living after I've won the lottery? Well, it's a little different. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to be a mime. And so once you, once you have the government stuffing the pipe with potential students, universities expand like crazy. They raise their fees like crazy. And that's not the most dangerous thing. The most dangerous thing is they lower their standards. You have to. You have to. I mean, if you're a modeling agency... And you don't have to sell your models to magazines or TV or runway or anything like that. But the government is paying you $50,000 for every model you sign up. Do you think you're going to be model. that picky? Yeah. No. You're going to take some chick from Alabama who's driving in on a motorsport with two teeth in her head. You can make it, honey. Ka-ching. So, and once you lower your standards, then higher education is done. It's done. And, and higher education 
is done in America for sure. It's that bad, huh? Oh, yeah, it's terrible. It, absolutely terrible. And, you know, I don't think people are going to be too shocked to hear this as a whole, but higher education is, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost like it just has to be started all over again. Mm-hmm. I would be hard-pressed to disagree with you. You know, I've, I've got a terminal degree in my field. I worked in higher education for a little while. Um, but the, the whole notion of burn it down and start over, that's, that does resonate a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and by that, I mean, it, it's, there's going to have to be a market because um, there is almost nothing more dangerous than the dilution of intellectual quality in a culture. It is one of the most dangerous toxicities that occur is the dilution of intellectual quality in a culture. And, you know, just as bad money drives out good money, bad pseudo-intellectualism drives out intelligent people. There's mm-hmm. a reason why I'm not in academia. Mm-hmm. And once the idiots have taken over the academy and drove, driven the smart people out, who, who, who is guarding the gates? Supposedly the board of trustees who are responsible to the bottom line, but typically they're not equipped to, to make calls as to judging good intellectual activity from bad intellectual activity. You know, they're, more ju- they're more suited to judge, okay, do you have 10 students enrolled or do you have 30 students enrolled? Oh, look, 30 students, that gets us more money. Yeah, I mean, that's their job, right? That's their job just to make money for the university. And they used to make money for the university by producing quality academics that people valued, that people respected, that people listened to. And now me, they don't. Let me run a hypothesis by you, you know, because the, th- the, the thought that it's, it's a, a pure question of markets uh, versus academia uh, is certainly correct. But let me run a, a hypothesis by you that it actually runs a little bit deeply, uh, more deeper than that. Uh, and that is a question of abstraction. Now, as, as an academic, and I'm, I'll draw an, an analogy with my own field, uh, and that is music. Uh, we rely very heavily on abstraction. But that's, that's basically part and parcel of what academics do. You know, as musicians, we all have to suffer the, you know, the hell of going through what's called a form and analysis class, where you have to be able to point out in a piece of music, how such and such a piece of music does or does not conform to an abstract ideal of how music is supposed to proceed. You don't have to be able to play the music. You don't have to be able to write the music. Uh, you just have to be able to sit on the sidelines and make judgments based on abstraction. And this, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that this would make academics a little bit more susceptible to progressive ideas, because if you think about it, progressive ideas, Marxism, these work great in abstraction. This is, it, 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 very bad things happen when you try to put these ideas into reality. I mean, that's when people die by the millions. But in the abstract, it's fantastic. And so no. would that make No, 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 of, come on, come on, no? dude, dude. No, I'm an empiricist. You, you can't say that, it, you know, it's like a scientific theory. It works very well in theory, but it's disastrous in practice. That, that, there's no dichotomy between theory and practice. Something which doesn't work in practice sucks as a theory. 
You can't separate these two things because then it, it's saying we have no way of judging anything until we implement it and millions of people hopefully die or don't die. No way of knowing whatsoever. There is a way of knowing. That doesn't stop Marxists from clinging to it. No, but, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. Right. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, to put together a, a, just a, a picture as to why academics would be really susceptible to this. No, no. You, you, you set up a dichotomy between theory and practice, that something can be wonderful in theory and terrible in practice. Uh-huh. Which means that we have to take all theories, run them through practice to find out which one is better or worse. And that's not how philosophy works. That's not how any cognitive discipline works. That's not how medicine works. You don't just stuff everything into sick people and find out what works. You have a theory. You do testing. You escalate the testing and so on, right? And you have double-blind experiments and so on. So Marxism sucks in theory and is murderous in practice. Uh, Marxism is irrational in theory and destructive in practice. It is not great in theory and destructive in practice. Socialism is terrible in theory. It's contradictory. Uh, It's hypocritical fundamentally, which is more of a moral than a rational judgment. It sucks in theory and it's murderous in practice. Fascism sucks in theory and it's murderous in practice. So I have to strongly push back on this old trope, and it's an old cliche, that there's things that are wonderful in theory, but terrible in practice. And I have yet, in all my decades and decades of examining intellectual theories, moral theories, economic theories, religious theories, I have yet to find anything that is wonderful in theory, in other words, rational and and consistent in theory, that just somehow mysteriously doesn't work in practice. And I've also yet to find anything that is consistent in theory that fails to work when it is practiced. So I really strongly urge you to challenge this idea in your mind, my friend, that something can be great in theory and terrible in practice, because that is to say that there's no fundamental relationship or causality between theory and practice. And that means that we have to try everything and hope for the best, which means disaster. Fair fair enough. Um, What if I substitute the word appealing? in practice for wonderful in practice. You mean theory? You're right. Uh, I'm sorry, in in theory, rather. Uh, Something that is appealing in theory, something that gives you a narrative, something that, because that's another thing that academics like to do, especially folks who are in the discipline of history. There's a narrative, there's a sweep, there's a story that things fit into. Uh, And so what if something is appealing in theory? And again, then. But appealing, appealing is appealing is not a um, is not a philosophical term. I don't care whether things are appealing or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it is appealing for a crazy person to think he's Jesus Christ or Napoleon. <laughs> well, of course, it's appealing, but what the hell does that have to do with anything? He's not right. And so, some, whether something's appealing or not has no intellectual content to me whatsoever. It might matter to a nutritionist, right? A nutritionist might say, "Well, you know, this food tastes better, so you got to be carefully limited," and so on. But as far as philosophy goes, you might, I mean, you certainly would examine it from a a logical standpoint and say, okay, well, uh, the crazy person, it's appealing for him to think that he's Napoleon, but he's not. And so I don't really care whether things are appealing or not. It only matters whether they're true. Now, you could say, well, why are things that are untrue um, enacted so often? And well, that's because people didn't do the right job of attacking back, right? So there's a a sort of famous uh, decision that was made by a free market economist. Maybe if it's Friedman, I can't remember exactly. But um, after the um, Keynesian general critique of 
things came out, he decided not to do, he said, oh, the book was not, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. It would have been a lot of work to rebut and he never, he never did it. It's not all his fault or anything, but he never rebutted Keynes' big sort of major work of general theory of unemployment or whatever it was called. Wherein he said, you know, the government should borrow when the economy is doing badly and then cut back on spending when it's doing well. Now, of course, that's appealing to governments because they get to borrow and they love borrowing. And they, of course, never got around to cutting back, of course, right, when, when things got better. And so the government picks that up. It's useful to them. You say, is it appealing? And I don't know. I guess it's useful to people in power. Certainly. And if you are a psychopathic control freak then, uh, and you want to go around enacting communism, it's going to satisfy your psychopathic control freak personality, right? Because you get to order everyone around and set prices for everything and tell everyone what to do and so on. So, yeah, stuff's useful to people in power, sure. But, I, you know, the appealingness of certain things, yeah. There are certain theories that give more power to people in power, and, of course, they're going to like them. Mm-hmm. And that's natural. And, and the reason why it works is that people don't hammer the um, irrationalities and contradictions of the theory put forward. And that way it slips past the goalie, which is supposed to be the rational theory thinkers pushing back, it slips past the goalie and embeds itself usually in the heart and minds of the general population. But uh, that's where you've got to be blocking these things as, as hard as you can. And that's a daunting task, isn't it? Well, compared to what? Compared to communism? <laughs> compared to 70 million or 100 million people killed through communism in the 20th century? I think it's all right. It is. That that certainly does give me a little bit of perspective as far as you know the ne- can we make it through the next couple of months being called idiots um, to think that yeah hundreds of millions of people you know had to suffer under the actual practice rather than to, just you know you're not being drafted right theory you're not being drafted so yeah people are going to call me names you know my ancestors had to go to war and get their arms blown off I think mm-hmm. I can handle some syllables. We have the easiest fight in history. That is good. I really needed to hear that. It's a lot easier. No trenches. No mustard gas. No atomic bombs. No radiation. No Agent Orange. It's not like we're. It's not like we're caught in the laser crosshairs of imperialist foreign policy. It's not like we're being disassembled by mortars. There's no one driving us at gunpoint into no man's land to be blown into bits among barbed wire and the remains of our comrades from the previous five minutes. We're not swarming in Gallipoli. We're not fighting and dying in metal birds over the sunny skies of England in 1940. We're not in Stalingrad when the Germans are starving you in the city. We're not being forced as they were during Mao's famine in China. We're not being forced to eat tree bark and we're not pulling apart pillows to see if we can eat feathers. We're not starving to death by the tens of millions. What we're doing is we're going out and we're speaking the truth and maybe people are getting mad at us and calling us bad names. But if our ancestors could pull off that shit, I think we can handle this. We got this. Yeah, for now, it's, it's a battle of ideas, and you're right. We, we do have it far better uh, than our forebears. And if you lose the battle of ideas, then you get the battle of blood. But it's then not you get the bloodshed, yeah. 
All right, listen, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but thanks so much for your question, and I'm, I'm glad to have given you some positive perspective. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Thanks, man. All right, up next is Brandon. Brandon wrote in and said, The West has been so completely infected by PC culture and identity politics that any criticism of ideologies or certain people is immediately conflated to racism, sexism, etc., etc., Rather than foster social and cultural harmony, this blatant suppression of thought is actively strengthening real prejudice in society. You needn't look very far to know this is not limited to just the UK. There's the New Year's Eve cologne attacks, media coverage of minority crimes, and much, much more. If everything is true about those rape gangs in the UK, how the hell are those men getting away with such heinous crimes for so long? I get the whole fear of being labeled a racist, bureaucratic ineptitude, etc., but don't those policemen have daughters of their own? Would they not put themselves in the shoes of the parents of those children? Has the West become so weak that it cannot recognize such blatant evil and rectify this injustice? That's from Brandon. Oh, hey, Brandon. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. My pleasure. So the rape gangs in the UK, you're talking about the Rotherham... Scandal where, yeah, I think it was uh, was a Pakistani man who had been sort of grooming and raping hundreds and hundreds of young British girls for quite some time. And there was some concern about bringing them to justice because there was fears that the police might be called racist or something like that, right? Yeah, that's right. I believe they, they called him Asian. But yeah, I believe it was Pakistani. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Um, where were all the people protesting that? You, you got people out on the left that protesting the Brexit vote, right? That that uh, England is now seems well, Britain seems poised to leave the EU, and they're out there protesting with signs and chants and yelling in their outrage. Was anyone doing this when these um, horrible crimes came to light? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, no, it's a, it's a stark contrast to to uh, what I do see in media here in the U.S., which is, you know, the the people at the stations welcoming refugees with teddy bears and signs and water, um, which is all anyone ever really sees. Uh, I mean, I, I, my, I don't have really a lot of friends that have been red-pilled, so the people that I do talk to are pretty plugged in. Um, so, I mean, they really have no idea. And when I, when I talk about something like the Rotherham rape scandal, it's, uh, it's a blank look at best. Right. Which is, um, well, it, you know, it's frustrating. Uh, but I, you, you I say sort of like this is weird infection. I, I mean, I don't think it's an infection. I mean, an infection is, is sort of accidental or random. Right. Uh, this is not, this is not, I mean, look, the left has been discredited in the West since the 1960s. Since Khrushchev pointed out the crimes of Stalin and since the horrifying atrocities committed by Chairman Mao and his Communist Party in China all came to light. They're done. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, the left, like, oh, it's paradise. Over. They're done, right? Right. And so they didn't want to give up just because they lost not only the theoretical argument, but the empirical argument, right? Because 
you know, and this is why I was hammering on the last guy about, oh, theory and practice. There's nothing that's beautiful in theory that's terrible in practice. Everything that's terrible in practice is terrible in theory. Everything that's brutal <laughs> in practice is irrational in theory. <laughs> yeah. My theory that balsa wood is a wonderful material for a train bridge is beautiful in theory. No, it's stupid in theory, and it's terrible and destructive in practice. <laughs> yeah, I, um, funny thing, my, my younger sister, uh, we had a bit of a discussion uh, over one of the past holidays where she was like, you know, communism is, would be great in, 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 it's great in theory, but it just doesn't work too, too yeah, well in everyone the real says world. That, everyone says that who doesn't have a clue. Like right. everyone who says, uh, just ask that person, oh, can you explain to me the theory of communism? Uh, some guy with a big beard? Uh, I don't know. It was a wall? I don't know. So, well, I, no. So, yeah. so, so forget, forget it's like an infection. It's, it's just it's an occupation of people who've lost the argument. It's all it is. The left can't win an argument to save their lives. And so what do they do? Do they say, oh, well, you know, we had this theory, which was, it started off with communism, and then we said socialism. Of course, the, so the goal of socialism, according to Lenin, is communism. And so did they say, well, you know, we had this great theory. It was put into practice in like a third of the world's population. And I don't know, after China, after... Russia, after the Eastern Bloc, after the Khmer Rouge, after God knows how many countries tried it, and it was all turned into a blood-soaked murder fest all around, you right. think people would say, maybe this isn't such a great idea. But well, they are selected. Hang on, hang on. But they are selected. They don't care. They want power. They don't want to be in the free market because they'll get more money and power by being in the government. And they need a big government because a bigger government can buy more votes. And so they lost the argument in the 1960s when communism became discredited and all the lies that all the people had told about communism, you know, they went and toured all of these what were called Potemkin villages where they'd take a bunch of people from the gulag, feed them up and pretend they were all happy and wonderful. Mm. Walter Durant to the New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize writing about these atrocities, never been rescinded. Mm. And then what happened was um, Joseph McCarthy and Whitaker Chambers and other people came along and exposed the, the, how many of these communists had wormed their way into the U.S. government and how they'd helped hand over China to communism, one of the great disasters of the 20th century, if not, well, certainly in the top three. So, <laughs> so they had this theory, and then they got to implement this theory in a wide variety of countries, and everywhere it was tried, it was a god-awful, psychotic, disastrous, murderous, monstrous mess. Yeah. So they lost. They lost the argument because I mean they could maintain it under Stalin, but when Khrushchev called Stalin's cult of personality and revealed all of the horrifying stuff that went on, and of course when Solzhenitsyn published his writings, the Gulag, Apikalago, and other writings talking about the prison camps, the the concentration camps, the oh, unbelievably horrifying stuff that occurred. And then I think it was a bunch of French researchers who compiled the big black book of communism talking about how many died. So mm. in the 1960s, this stuff came, China I think was a little later, but certainly in the early 1960s, mid-1960s, um, the, the facts about Russia just came tumbling out. So they lost. They lost. <laughs> they lost. And what did they do? They say, man, we're sorry. That was just terrible. I can't believe we, 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 we thought this was a good system that resulted in the deaths of so many people. No. They said, damn, we can't win this argument. 
we can't make a case that people should vote left because it's really great for people. So we just better import cultures that are going to vote left. Yeah. And this is why in the 1965, Teddy Kennedy sponsored this immigration bill specifically designed to cut off European immigration and replace it with third world immigration. Why? Because they lost the argument. And so they had to stuff the ballot with people <laughs> who were going to vote left. And this is why the historically racist party of the Democrats switched and then began courting the black votes with welfare. Guaranteed votes. It was one of the most racist things done in American politics, and somehow the <laughs> Republicans are racist. <laughs> and so they lost the argument, and so they had to um, import votes, and then they had to cover up all of the discrepancies that occurred as a result of importing third world cultures. Those third world cultures don't do that well in a first world country. So in order to cover that up, because people were going to notice that, this is another theory. Hey, everyone's the same. Don't worry about the second generation. They'll be exactly like us, if not halfway through the first generation. We're all just made of water. You pour them into magic soil. They'll become just like us, right? Well, at some point, people were going to say, I don't think that's happening. I don't think that there's that much integration from the third world cultures going on in the West. So... What did they have to do? Because that's another theory. We're all the same. Everyone's the same. Kumbaya. We're all going to end up the same. In multiculturalism, diversity is all wonderful and it's a strength. And it, right? And then people at some point were going to notice that it wasn't working at all. Mm. And then, and then, what do they do? Well, what, is tyrannic, what do tyrannical personalities always do with counter data? They attempt to shut it up. They attempt to squelch it. They attempt to attack it. And so you have, yeah, you have to invent, you have to invent racism to cover up the fact that racists don't perform equally well in Western <laughs> societies. And coincidentally, it seems to have a lot to do with IQ. So you have to yeah. racism. And that way, no one can talk about facts which go counter to what the left needs, which is votes, which they can't get with good arguments and good data. Because communism killed 100 million people. That's like two and a half World War Twos. Sorry if I'm skeptical, lefties, but that's a lot of blood to overlook. I can't Jesus my I can't Jesus waddle my way across that much fucking gore. No, certainly not. So they have to cover up the failures of their theories. And so when Joseph McCarthy pointed out that there was a giant rot in the American government, Soviet spies. They attacked him, destroy him, make an example out of him. And he died young, died in his 50s. And when people start to notice that disparate ethnic groups are not all blending and doing the same, ah, racism, it's racism that's the cause and you're racist for pointing it out because it goes against the narrative they need to get votes because they lost the argument. And then when people say, you know, women make different choices than men, they choose to usually to work on average, right, as a whole. They choose to work less than men. They choose to take, take jobs with more flexibility. They take more part-time jobs. And that's why they make 70-odd cents on the dollar compared to men. Ah, sexism. <laughs> you can't even talk about it. It's wrong. It's this. It's that. 97% of climate scientists. Ah. 
You know, the people, are academics suggesting the people who are climate change skeptics should be thrown in jail. See, when you've lost the argument, you attack. Jason Richwine, been on the show a couple of times, has data that shows something that goes against the left's narrative. Destroy him! Attack him! <laughs> when, you know, when, 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 when the argument is lost, as, Arist- as Socrates said, when the argument is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. So it's Indeed. not an infection. It's not a random thing. They want the, the, the left pushes for free uh, or subsidized higher education because they love for hardworking free market Republican taxpayers to be forced to subsidize the leftist indoctrination of the young. I mean, it's perfect. Mm. It's perfect. Can you point. imagine? Can you imagine Republicans demanding? Can you imagine Republicans demanding that leftists be forced through taxes to pay for mandatory Sunday school? <laughs> no. For for all leftists? No. They'd go insane. That's indoctrination. That's wrong. Brainwashing. So it's it's not it's not, you know, it's not an accident. It's um it's just what what people do when they're addicted to power. They don't care about the long they just need the power. They need the power. Want the power. Mm. So when you have rape gangs in the United Kingdom, and as there are in other places, um, so the Rotherham thing, i just give you a couple of details, is of, of 1,400 children were subjected to appalling sexual exploitation in Rotherham in England between 1997 and 2013. So that's a long time. A long yeah. time. A report yeah. found, quote, several staff described their nervousness about identifying the ethnic origins of perpetrators for fear of being thought as racist. Others remembered clear direction from their managers not to do so. Failures by those charged with protecting children happened despite three reports between 2002 and 2006, which both the council and police were aware of, and, quote, which could not have been clearer in the description of the situation in Rotherham. The first of these reports was effectively suppressed because senior officers did not believe the data. The other two were ignored. Hmm. And that's because... The left needs votes. And if 1,400 British children need to be groomed, assaulted, sexually assaulted, and raped, and some set on fire with gasoline or threatened with it if they didn't conform, well, that's the a, left needs that's votes. A, left needs votes. A, right. But that's a hell of a sacrifice. That's awful beyond all reason. I mean, not to an addict. Mm. Right? Not to an addict. Because an addict. I mean, a real addict. What? Are, I mean, they destroy their families. They burn through all their savings. They steal from businesses. They commit crimes. They prostitute themselves. They, I mean, to get your drug of choice. That's what you do. What about? I mean, I, I, it makes sense for the you know the officers, the the higher up officers, the administrators, and whatnot. But what about the boots on the ground policemen who are seeing this like firsthand? Like, where are they going to go? Oh, I know. Let's go to the media. Huh. Seems <laughs> that the media doesn't want to promote things which go against the leftist narrative. Hmm. Yeah. And also, what, what if they get caught going to the media? What if, they, what if someone finds out that they went against their direct orders, leaked to the media? Ooh, could be quite exciting. Right. 
because the media doesn't want this information out. Again, I'm collecting this. There's right media, but in general, the media is tens, tens left throughout the West. So the 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 the, uh, the media, it might be a trap. The reporter might say, "Oh, you've got some cool stuff about Rotherham," and the the cop sits down, a policeman sits down, and tells them all, and then the media turn around, stab, and says, "This guy is revealing information against his orders." Boom. The third, what? the third officer involved in this Freddie Gray, Baltimore situation, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who was arrested and uh, injured his neck or his spine and died. Right. right. The third officer has now been acquitted. I don't even know if they're going to continue. As the police right. chief saying, stop this malicious prosecution. Do they care? The people who are pumping this narrative, like all this race baiting stuff that goes on in American media, do they care? No, of course that not. That hundreds of black lives have been lost as a result of the police being somewhat paralyzed out of fear of malicious, malicious prosecution? They got the power. They got the votes. They riled up people and got them to vote left. I don't know. I, I can't fathom. I can't fathom the entire mental structure that would allow for for years the continued sexual assault of children to pass by. Yeah. I, 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 can't fathom, I can't fathom that as a concept, how this could happen. But that's because I'm not an addict to power. I I actually have a, I mean, I sent in this question, uh, I think about four or five months ago. And since then, I, I've consumed quite a, bit, quite a bit of media trying to, to get to the bottom of this rabbit hole. And I kind of have somewhat of a, a running idea um, that answers my question. And that, that is that people are very willing to shed their empathy when it's politically and socially convenient. So, I mean, that's the only thing I can come to, you know, trying to understand why those guys, the lower lower officers, were seeing what was happening and not doing anything about it. I, look, it may have tortured some of them, and maybe they quit because of it. Mm. But knowing that children are being assaulted by, I don't care what ethnicity, it could be foreheads and liver spots on your ass, I don't care. But, I mean, maybe they quit. Um, but mm. uh, I don't know. I mean, how could how can people how can people do this? Wouldn't that be in your head? What what was going on year after year after year after year? And why isn't anyone protesting? I I thought the left was against the rape culture. Now I'm not <laughs> saying that all Pakistanis, of course not, right? But in this particular gathering of Pakistanis, mm-hmm. well, um, seems kind of rapey. <laughs> Just a tad bit rapey. Um. Yeah, it, it, it's – and the reason why I actually submitted the question in the first place is because it's really you, – you can't bring this – you can't bring this up with people who – or it's very difficult to bring this up with people who are not already in somewhat of the know of what's going on in Europe. You know, I, I live in the West Coast of America, and it's just like – you bring this up with normal people, and they're like, "Like what? This, this, that? That makes no sense." The, the first reaction is disbelief. They just—they don't even. They're like, "Nah, I didn't. That's whatever. They're blowing it up, or blowing it out of proportion, or it didn't happen, or not to that extent, and blah 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 blah." They don't see it as like an existential, in, in a way, an existential threat to Western society, which is kind of how I look at it. Um, this is really. 
there's no way to relate to you know relate that this is going on and have any kind of meaningful conversation at in in at where I'm at, which I think if there if that conversation was to happen that there might actually be, I don't know, because I can be completely delusional or too optimistic to think that you know uh, people would be outraged here over stuff happening over there. Um, yeah. Right. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I because I don't. I don't care what people do with the truth. I can't because I can't control that. Right. right. I, I. I. I speak passionately uh, and hopefully intelligently and and with sources about things that matter, mm-hmm. things that are important. Does it matter what people believe? Does it matter what ideologies put forward? Does it matter? that communism concentrates economic power into the hands of a tiny elite, it matters. Now, what people do with all of that, I, I don't, I can't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, and I can't fundamentally worry about it or care about it. Right. I care about the presentation because, you know, try and get it away across in, in a way that helps. Mm-hmm. But... What they do with that information. So you're saying, well, uh, w- what will people do with this information? Right. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, but, but you, you, you speak the truth. You know, this is right. how I was raised. I, I was told, I was told as a child, <laughs> I was told as a child in church, <laughs> I was told as a child in church, speak the truth and shame the devil. Speak the truth and shame the devil. Because if you speak the truth, you will very quickly find out who's on the side of good and who's not. Right. Because you can't be on the side of good and reject the truth. I, you know, I don't know, though, Stefan, that it's, it's a rejection of the truth. It's just, it's like they just don't, it's, not, it's a non-concern. They don't care. It's, uh, they're not promoting the devil, but they're not embracing the truth. It's just kind of this middle ground where it's just like, well, if that's over there, I'm here, it's not affecting me, it's cool. Whereas I look at it, I'm like, that's over there, that's happening, that's evil. Like, if we don't face that now, it's going to come to our front door. Well, but, again, uh, I mean, what, what people do with it, who knows, right? I mean, you've just got to tell the truth. After that, yeah. it's out of your hands. You know, you, you, you can put a billboard with a tasty-looking meal out front of your restaurant, but you can't go and drag people into your re- restaurant to eat and make them eat. Right? You, you, you make a nice restaurant. You have good food. Mm-hmm. You make it attractive. You put a sign outside. You put an ad <laughs> out. And you wait. Right? So, you know, how am I going to make people eat at my restaurant? You can't. Yeah. Can't do it. Can't do it. Now, you can put the truth out there, the facts out there. I've heard you, um, I mean, I listen to your show quite a lot. I've, I've listened to basically, I, I've, I've heard this, this same discussion with the callers you've had before where, where they're like wondering how they can get this truth to their, how they can make the truth have an impression or effect on their friends and family. And you always tell them kind of the same thing you're telling me now, which is 
you know, bounce, bounce it off of them a little bit and see if there's any kind of response. And if not, move on. But. If I knew, or if, if there was even a way, Brandon, to, um, to, to make people receive the truth, it wouldn't be the truth anymore. <laughs> the truth has to be chosen, right? The truth has yeah. to be chosen. The truth, the virtue has to be chosen or it's not virtue. Right? Force people to do things and just, you just turn them into an empty, obedient robot shell of compliance. Fear of virtue. Right. There's nothing virtuous about the welfare state because it's compelled. Nothing virtuous about government education because it's compelled. Right. It's compelled. No, the, the, was, the degree to which you compel is the degree to which you strip people of free will and of their capacity to actually be good. And so even if there was a way to compel virtue among people, which is kind of a rank contradiction, <laughs> I don't know. And even if I did, then you wouldn't have to worry about it because I'd have some magic wand to make people rational and virtuous and you wouldn't have to do a damn thing. Yeah. Job would be done. Yeah. Um, Boom. <laughs> magic wand. There was uh, <laughs> a, a recent show of yours with a, a, a Hispanic or I, I don't know, Mexican or whatever he was, uh, a Trump supporter who came on your show and kind of told the truth about how Hispanics and, and Mex or Mexicans in America feel. Like the, well, you know, his the, his friends, his circle, right? I mean, he obviously his circle, speak right? For yeah, of course. But yeah, his circle. Yeah, but not all, right? Yeah, uh, and I myself am, am half. Um, I, my father was born in Mexico, and I'm my, my mother's white, and I was I was raised here, and I all the stuff he was saying, I could um, cooperate. I mean, it, it was so you you technically you'd be called his pap at sunburn. Just kidding. Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, but um. I kind of had the luxury. I, I grew up away from all that. Um, I, my parents divorced when I was a baby and I live with my mom and white people. No. <laughs> but uh, my father ended up going out and marrying other women and, and just going elsewhere. But um, so I missed all of that. Uh, but I, where I grew up, there was a lot of Hispanics, Mexicans. I saw all of it. I saw the views, the views kind of afar of some of my Mexican family members. And all the stuff he said was true. Um, it was it was actually good to hear someone talk about it honestly, who had been in the thick of it, because he, he his experience certainly very different than mine. Um, yeah, fortunately for me, I guess, but um, I, I wasn't surrounded by regressive leftists my entire life. Hmm. Uh, but uh, he, he seemed to pull himself out of it. And I like it's like you said, like his words, your truth had an effect on him. And he just chose it. And he was asking you how to impart it on his friends and family. But yeah, it's the same thing. It has to be chosen, I guess. <sighs> right. So, yeah, I mean, if you, I just wanted to sort of like, there's this weird infection. It's, 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 it's not, it's not a weird infection. It's, the need to put your finger on the scale because your meat gone rotten, right? I mean, it, that's a really bad analogy, but yeah, um, yeah they, I, they lost the argument, so they need to stuff the ballot, right? I mean, if if you can, if you can really beat the other guy in the boxing ring, you don't need to fix the match, right? Right. So um, when when there people was... can't win a political argument, they need to import people who are going to vote for them, and for the left, that's. Non-Europeans. Back in the 60s, Europeans didn't want a big, giant government. 
But, um, you know, as we've seen from a bunch of studies which we've done, uh, which we've referenced on this show, a lot of people from the third world, very comfortable with uh, lots of government benefits and big governments. And um, we can understand why when we look at a variety of other factors, which we've talked about before. So, Right. Actually, um, kind of a decent analogy for as as opposed to an infection, um, I heard another analogy about PC culture. Do you know uh, a a spider wasp? Are you familiar with with a spider wasp? A spider walk? Wasp. Oh, a spider wasp. They're back. Yes. Not from Australia, are they? (laughs) No, no. Okay, a spider wasp. No, go ahead. Okay, so basically, uh, a spider wasp will find a larger, healthy spider, a, a live spider, to land on and uh, infect with their eggs, so that the wasp's young, the eggs, has something to grow into and then hatch and eat. And obviously, when they hatch and begin to eat on the spider, the spider dies. So... That was an analogy I heard. This is not not mine. I'm just repeating it. Someone else said about what PC culture does to West the West Western society and Western values that it, it will eventually be fatal. Um, and I, you could look at it that the wasp is somewhat it has intent. Like there's it's like you said, not a random infection. There's intent in this process. Yeah, no, it's it's not it's not accidental, and of course, because people are very good at convincing themselves that what they want to do that serves their lusts is good, then there's the additional benefit of um, that the people on the left, and I have no idea to what degree this is true or accurate, but you know, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of them really genuinely believe that they are trying to do the right thing and and they virtue that this is the only good way to to get things done and and. You know, they have that particular perspective. And um, right, right. so, you know, when, when something is both, uh, you know, at least at least the, um, you know, the, 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 the heroin ad is usually not not saying what a great, cool thing he's doing. Like he might, right. he might at the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm on the edge. I'm, you know, like Hendrix, I'm going to be creative or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, later he's just like, no, no virtue here. I just need a fix, right? But when you can virtue signal and there's an addiction, which I think is the essence of the unholy convergence of addiction, political power, and sort of basic human lust and and virtue signaling, uh, it really becomes very difficult to to change over. Yeah, I in in relation to this, I kind of had a, a similar conversation with my wife recently. Um, she lived uh, in Orlando for the last couple of years, and. Um, she just came back, um, not 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 a month ago, and she's not American. She's a, from somewhere else, and she didn't really. She was very troubled by what happened. First of all, because she has friends who who have gone to that club. Luckily, all her friends were okay. Um, but she kind of was distraught at that somebody could do this, and why why they could do something so evil. And I, I told her, I was like, you got to look at it. Like, he, he does not think he's doing evil when he's killing them. Like, he thinks what he's doing is right. Like, he is acting justly according to his beliefs. And I, I think that kind of helped her process it a bit better. But um, as, as well, you can process something like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is, that is important. And, um, you know, again, to be fair, a majority, vast majority of Muslims would uh, not act on those beliefs, but, um, he did. Of course. And, um, you know, are the beliefs completely irrelevant? Uh, You know, there's, there's a case, there's a case to be made either way, but uh, I don't think we should immediately dismiss the question. So, right. So yeah, I hope, I hope that it helps that it's not just a, a random thing and it's not right. I mean, how do, how do they get away with heinous crimes? Uh, well, because the um, the left wants to import people from the third world to vote for the left. And, right. um, you know, you, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few hundred little girls. I, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. It's disgusting to my core. I just, I, I, you know, I just... Mm. Oh, it is. It is, it, of course. And, you know, the, the, the general anti-white racism is pretty clear that if this was a white gang targeting black girls I mean can you imagine no, it would have been a media can outrage for months oh it would be I mean you, you, it would be sh- shocking and unstoppable and ever escalating and but this you know it tells you everything that you need to know about a lot of topics, sadly. Um, and I'll let people mull, mull that, mull that over as they see fit. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to close up the show, but I really, really do appreciate everyone calling in. It is a great honor, privilege and uh, joy to be able to chat with y'all and, um, fdrurl.com slash donate or freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. If you want to get some free books, I haven't mentioned this enough, but I should. Uh, freedomainradio.com slash free to check out the books. You can use our affiliate link, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Thank you everyone so much um, for giving us the resources to be able to get a couple of million people um, to Brexit videos, Brexit podcasts, and combined shows I did with other people. It is a um, a real privilege, and we really, really, together as a community, we really moved the needle on that vote, and uh, it's a very powerful thing to have done. And I really thank you for the resources to be able to allow us to do that and to help us to do even more. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful night, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.